How many of you have shot a bow and arrow? Like a real one, not like the Walgreens aisle suction cup bow and arrow, like a Hunger Games bow and arrow. If you shot one before, you know it's amazing. And if you've never shot a bow and arrow, you need to go like tomorrow and shoot one because it's amazing. You, you, depending on what type of bow and arrow you've shot before, you either have shot one of the old school ones where you have to balance the arrow on your finger or like the fancy ones where it's all already set. It's got like sights on it, like laser sights. Unbelievable. But the first time you shoot an arrow at one of those targets, especially if you have the old school Robin Hood target, you know, with the big red bullseye in the middle, you got the quiver on your backpack, you feel like a ninja, you know, you, you sit there, you pull it in, and you begin to pull it back, and you can feel the power and the tension. And you're aiming, and you let go, and if you strike the bullseye, like, you quit right there. You never do it again, but you're probably going to come close. You maybe narrowly miss. You, you're going to hit the target, most likely, it was some decent hand-eye coordination. But what happens is, as you begin to shoot the arrow more often, you take steps back. You put some distance between you and the target because you want to see how far you can shoot. What's the distance you can cover? Can you still hit a bullseye? Can you still hit the target? The problem is the farther you get back, the more difficult it becomes. Now you're not narrowly missing the bullseye. Like you're just trying to hit the target. You know, you're, you're barely getting it there. It's under, it's over to the side. You're just trying to hit the target. We've been going through this series for the last several weeks in the book of Esther, and it's called Instrument. What does it mean to be an instrument of God? And we've been discussing that God has a purpose for his people, a unique calling. And as we saw last week, that he makes known to you the note that you're to play in his orchestra. And tonight we're going to see what it looks like to play your part in God's orchestra as he's making beautiful music in the life of of this city and the world through the power of his gospel. But one of the things that can happen in life, if you're honest and if you're like me, is that life can feel like shooting a bow and arrow at a target. It feels like you're, you're sitting there and you have this focus. You want to hit the perfect shot. You line everything up. You do everything you need to do. You pull the tension back. You release. And it feels a lot of times like you're just narrowly missing, Right? You don't hit the bullseye exactly. You got a lot of things in your life that are going well, things that are, you know, going the way that you desire, but there's a few things that are off. There's something missing. There's a level of emptiness or unfulfilled nature in your life. But sometimes what can happen too, which brings a lot of frustration and anxiety and fear, is that every month that goes by and every year that goes by, it feels like you're taking a step away from the target. And as you keep stepping back, you keep trying to line up that perfect shot to really find your purpose and to find your calling and to know what you're made for and to feel like you've hit the bullseye. But as you take steps back each month, each year, it feels unlikely. Now you're not concerned about hitting the bullseye. That would be a miracle. Now you're just trying to hit the target, just somewhere in the vicinity of where you're supposed to be. And last week, as we were discussing how God makes known to us the unique purpose and calling that he's given each and every one of you, tonight we're going to double down on that. You can't just have one conversation on purpose. The text compels us to have more and to think deeply about purpose and about calling and to ask the question, what is it that God is calling me to do? What is my part to play? And the good news is that God has made known to us in very simple ways, what it looks like to hit the bullseye. And we're going to see that in the life 
of Esther and through this text that we have with us. And so if you were with us last week, you remember what happened. So there's this man named Mordecai, and he's been hiding his identity, his, his faith for a long time. He's living in the Persian Empire, and he takes a stand, a literal stand for his faith. He finally decides to be authentic in his convictions, and he refuses to bow before Haman and to pay homage and worship to him. And some of you, if you're just joining us tonight, you're like, who is Haman? I don't know who this character is. Where is this person? I told you last week, Haman is Haman. I'm just trying to be authentic, guys. My friend is Jewish. I asked him how you say it. He said Haman, but you Americans say Haman, so I'm going with Haman. I'm going to keep it original. So if you're wondering, Haman, Haman, same person. So Mordecai decides to not kneel and said to stand before Haman, and it makes him furious. And so what he does is he convinces the king to enact a decree to destroy all the Jewish people in the entire Persian empire stretching from India to Ethiopia. And Mordecai falls apart. He begins to weep and to mourn in sackcloth and ashes outside the king's gate. And Esther hears about this. She's isolated in the palace. She doesn't know what's going on. And she hears about it. And so what she does is she sends a servant to go back and forth to figure out what's happening. And Esther learns what's taken place. She hears about this whole interaction and she learns about the decree. And then Mordecai says to Esther, here's what you need to do. You need to go to the king and advocate on behalf of your people. And Esther is hesitant. She's like, I I don't know if that's a good idea. Let me give you the reasons. One, the king doesn't know I'm a Jew. That's going to be a problem. I've lied to him all these years. He does not know that. It's not going to go well. Two, the king and I aren't really in a good relationship right now. He has not invited me into his throne room to see him for over 30 days. So maybe we should wait until things get better. It's not a good time. Three, everyone knows one of the basic laws of the land is that if you enter the king's court unannounced and uninvited, you are killed. It's a death sentence. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered some pottery with pictures of this exact thing, of the king sitting in his throne room with a man next to him with an axe, killing people that come in unannounced. So Esther's like, Mordecai, I don't know if this is a good idea. Like, let's kind of walk it back. And then Mordecai asks her that really profound question, which is, Esther, do you not think that God has you here for such a time as this? Like, look at your life. All these things are not coincidences. You are not coincidentally the queen. God has you here for this moment, and the reason he has you here is not to be silent, but it's to step forward in courage to the unique purpose that God has called you to. And she says very famously, if I perish, I perish. And she tells Mordecai, take three days of prayer and fasting. I'm going to take three days of prayer and fasting with those with me, and and then I'm going to go and enact this plan. And so here's where we pick up tonight in the very beginning of chapter five. It says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. You have to imagine how Esther's feeling for a moment, right? King and her are not doing well. King does not know she's a Jew, and she has not been invited in. And that means most likely a death sentence. And so she's like, okay, well, I, I got to do something. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get all dressed up. I'm going to, you know, I'm the queen. And so I'm going to dress according to the honor that's deserving of me as queen. So she gets dressed up to look beautiful, to look like the queen. And then she's standing outside of the door. Imagine. The de- okay, here we go. Deep breath. 
steps into the throne room, and then she just stands there and waits, wondering what's going to happen. And then it says, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, uninvited, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, and then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. You're like, big exhale. Step one, we got past. I'm not killed. Somehow I made it past that. He's being very generous today. He lends out his scepter. She touches it, which is a symbolic act, like everything's okay. I'm not going to kill you. You're going to get the scepter, not the axe. And so she's like, okay, now, now on to step two. King says to her, what is it, Queen Esther? It's interesting. This is the first time that she's called Queen Esther in the whole story. You see, the queen is, is treating her with honor and dignity. Saying, what is it, Queen Esther, my queen? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Okay, he's like feeling really generous, right? I'm not going to kill you. Come on over, my queen. What would you like? What is your request? Why are you here? I did not invite you in, but I didn't kill you. So I want you to tell me what you desire of me up to half of my kingdom. Wow. She had to have been feeling like, God, you are good. Like, wow, this is unbelievable. And then here's what she says to him. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. I have to stop. Sometimes when we read stories, we read way too fast, and we miss what's happening here. This is not what we expect to read, right? You're expecting the queen comes in. She's nervous she's going to get killed. If I perish, I perish, but the king's feeling generous. He invites her forward. He gives her honor and dignity by regarding her as queen, and then she, he says to her, what is your request? Up to half of my kingdom. Like, he's feeling very generous. This is a great moment, and what you expect for Esther to say is, Okay, I love you. I just wanted you to know. I haven't seen you in 30 days. I want you to know I love you, king. Really love you a lot. And um, I'm a Jew. Yes, I know. That's a problem. I lied to you for many, many years, but I'm a Jew. Uh, real name's Hadassah. And um, you know how you like enacted that decree recently to kill all the Jewish people? Uh, that's me and my people. And you're feeling very generous. So what I would like to ask you to do is to just like rip up the decree. Can we change it? Amendment, you know? Because um, you're going to lose your queen and a whole bunch of other wonderful people. They're not worthless people like Haman told you. So that's my request. But that's not what she says. She says, I would like to invite you to come with me and bring Haman, second in charge, to a feast. You're like, what? Why didn't she present the request? You see, she has a plan. You're going to see this plan unfold. It's so important to stop there and to notice that because sometimes we can fall into believing that when God makes known to us the, the, the unique purpose and the unique calling that he has for us, it's as if we have to like leave ourselves to the side. You see, that's not how God works. God works in and through his people. He works in your personality and your interest and your experiences and your opportunities he works in your thoughts with your mind. He works in and through you. You see, when Esther recognizes that she's called to not be silent, but to go before the king and advocate on behalf of her people, on behalf of God's people, she spends three days in prayer and fasting crafting a plan. And she trusts here that God is going to work in and through her. 
She doesn't rush impulsively like, okay, I know I'm supposed to do this, so let me just run into the throne room and just tell the king what the deal is. She takes time. She spends time praying and fasting and thinking and crafting a plan because she knows the king well. So she's thinking, how is this going to play out? What's the best strategy to see this thing be successful? And she believes that God is going to work in and through that. You have to remember that because, listen, God didn't make a mistake with you. He didn't make a mistake in your personality. He didn't make a mistake in bringing you to where you are now. He didn't make a mistake with your opportunities, your education, or your passions, or your interests, or your thoughts, and how you think. He didn't make a mistake. He wants to work in and through you. And so when God calls you to something, it's not as if he wants you to leave those things aside. He wants you to bring your whole self into it and trust that he's going to be faithful to work in and through you. And so she spent time crafting this plan, and she invites the king and Haman to come to this feast. And he says, okay, well, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So they had this great dinner. They have good wine. They're hanging out after. They're drinking some more wine. And the king senses, like, there's something deeper in Queen Esther. Like, her request was not to have a feast. There's something else there. What is it? So let me bring her near and ask her. Okay, what is the request? Up to half of my kingdom, you can have it and it will be fulfilled to you. Surely now is when she's going to say, let's rip up the decree amendment, let's move on. But she says this, my wish and my request is if I found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You see, Esther knows the king needs two feasts. He's a two-feast kind of guy. You know, it's not a one-feast kind of, he needs two feasts before she presents the request. She's thought through this whole plan. And so she says, let's do another feast with wine and food tomorrow. Bring Haman again. And then I'll tell you what that thing is deep down in my heart that I want to request of you. And he agrees to it. It says, after the first feast, after this night, Haman says he goes away back to his home with a joyful and glad heart. Like he's really feeling himself. Like he's feeling like a big deal. Like, man, look at me. I'm hanging out with the king and the queen. We had a feast. We've been drinking wine. And I got another feast to go to tomorrow. And it says that he leaves to head home out of the king's gate. And when he walks out of the king's gate, it says that he saw Mordecai, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, and he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. You see, Esther knows all of this is going to happen. Because in the previous chapter, Esther has been talking with Mordecai, and she knows he's at the king's gate. This is his station for now. And she knows that Haman is going to head home after the first feast and leave through the king's gate and see Mordecai. And she knows what it's going to cause in him, wrath and anger, probably impulsiveness, what we'll see in a moment. And this is all a part of her plan. See, God is working in and through her. He's working through her thoughts and her creative wisdom and her strategy. It says that Haman goes home and he is just incensed. He, he says, listen, 
he brings his wife and all of his friends together. He's like, I am a big deal. Like, I'm awesome, right? Like, look how many promotions. Look how wealthy I am. I was just at a feast with the king and the queen, only the three of us, because it's just the three of us. You know what I mean? And tomorrow, we're going to do another feast, just the three of us. And it's ruined because this guy Mordecai. I got the decree enacted, but it has not actually been carried out yet, so he's still alive, and he's killing my vibe. He is straight killing my vibe. Like, I can't enjoy anything because he's there. So his wife and his friends are discussing, like, listen, it's not a simple fix. Like, you're second in charge. Why don't you just have your servants build the gallows, and let's just hang them. Just get them killed, and then you can go joyfully to your second feast. He's like, yeah, that's a good plan. Let's do that. And that's where the chapter ends. It's like a major cliffhanger. You're like, whoa, what happens next? You have to be back next week, 5 o'clock, to find out. Or you could just open your Bible to Esther chapter 6. Do both. That would be great. But it leaves you with this cliffhanger. And what we're going to see next week is how God has working in and through Esther's courage, her acknowledgement of the purpose and the unique calling that God has given her. And he is going to bring redemption through her to save and redeem and deliver his people. It's amazing. You know, last week, as Esther is kind of faced with this reality, and she's full of fear because she th- is thinking to herself, I'm most likely going to die here. But if I perish, I perish. And she considers the question, maybe God has me here for such a time as this. And what we said is that your purpose is not found, but your purpose is realized in Christ. We speak a lot about finding our purpose as if it's in our hands. I'm trying to find my purpose. You don't find your purpose. You realize your purpose in Christ. You can't manufacture your purpose. Esther does nothing to manufacture it. It's given to her. It's made known to her. She's just living her life. And because of someone else's actions, it results in her being called to step forward in faith and with courage into what God has set out for her. And tonight what happens is we look at this plan unfolding and we see her faithfully playing her part is that when God makes known to you your purpose, there's something that's going to happen every single time. He's going to require something of you. See, for Esther, she had to consider that her life may be required. When God calls you into whatever it is that he is bringing you into, your whole self, your personality, your passions, your desires, your thoughts, it's going to require something of you. There's a very famous author and and speaker named Elizabeth Elliot, wonderful. And she knows this very well because her husband was Jim Elliot. And Jim Elliot felt called to go to Ecuador to this remote village in the rainforest that had never interacted with another human civilization, had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he felt that God had made known to him that this is his unique purpose. This is his unique calling. This is his part to play. He goes there, begins to make contact with him, and shortly after, he's martyred. He's killed. And Elizabeth Elliot not only witnessed and heard about and then had to deal with the loss of her husband because his purpose required his life, but she was also able to see the way that God used all of those different events 
to bring about growth and fulfillment and glory to God in and through his life. And she was then able to herself step into her purpose to care for the church and God's people. And she has this great quote. She says this, we cannot give our hearts to God and keep our bodies to ourselves. You see, God desires your heart. First and foremost, he desires your heart. He desires that you give your heart and surrender in faith to Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. You receive God's grace and he gets your whole heart. But when you give God your heart, your body comes with it. Your thoughts, your personality, your actions, your opportunity, your experiences, you can't hold those things back. You give those things. God didn't make a mistake with you. He's using all of you. He works, wants to work in and through you. You see, Jesus tells us when you're a disciple, you take up your cross and follow him. You carry everything. You carry difficulty and suffering. You carry everything with you as you follow after Jesus. That following Christ, and when God makes known to you unique purpose, it's going to require something of you. And that can be scary, especially if you feel like you know what it is and that he's asking you to step into when he reveals his will to you and there's going to be that moment of courage to step into it and he's going to be requiring something of you that you may not want to let go of. But you see what the story of Esther reminds us is that you're an instrument of God. Right now, today, you are an instrument of God and he wants to use you. All of you. He, he desires your heart, but he requires your whole self. And you consider that question that we're dealing with tonight, which is, okay, so what is my part to play? I don't really know. I feel like I'm missing the bullseye or barely hitting the target. What is my part to play? I want to know. I watched this video this week. It was on discovering your purpose. I was like, okay, this is good. Two-minute video. I'm going to know how to discover my purpose. Here's what it says. Really simple. You just have to ask yourself deep questions of life, like who am I really and where is there need in the world? And then you need to realize that God has given you t gifts and talents to better the world, and you need to begin to search for the answers. You need to know you're not going to find your purpose overnight. It's going to take some time, but God wants to use you to better the world. And so as you take time to reflect upon your gifts, your talents, your passions, your experiences, who you are really, who you're becoming, and where there's need in the world, and you consider all those things and where they collide, that's where your purpose is. Simple. Are you exhausted by hearing that? You're like, I watched a two-minute video. I was like, I'm going to take a nap. You know, like, I guess I'm never going to find my purpose. Who am I really? I don't know. How am I supposed to figure that out? Who am I becoming? I have no idea. Where is there need in the world? There's a lot of need in the world. Gifts and talent. I mean, it's like all these things, where they collide. Like, I guess I'm never going to hit the bullseye. See, it can be so easy to fall into that, Right? You feel defeated and, and you feel like exhausted by the pursuit. And it's because we often fall into the temptation of thinking that God's purpose in our life has to be grand. Has to be grand. As if God doesn't call you to do something wild and extreme, it can't be God's will. You think to yourself, well, unless God calls me to leave everything and move overseas, then I, don't, I probably don't have a unique purpose. Unless God calls me to leave my job and go join a nonprofit organization or a church, then I probably don't have a unique purpose. Unless God calls me to create something that's going to better the, the world and change the lives of others, then I probably don't have a unique purpose. So you can fall into the temptation of thinking that unless your life is worthy of a Netflix documentary, it's not God's will, right? 
Like, okay, how, can God's will for my life really be a nine-to-five job with the same company for 10 years in the same city? The answer is yes. But we fall into believing that our, God's will and his purpose has to be so grand and so extreme that people would want to watch it on Netflix. Most of our lives are not Netflix-worthy, guys. Right? But we fall into that. And so what happens is one of two things. Either you struggle with feeling content in life. You constantly feel like you're missing out. You're making wrong decisions. You don't really know God's purpose. You constantly live in that doubt. And so oftentimes you miss out on a lot of the things that God wants to call you into. Or the second thing is you begin to try to manufacture your purpose. You're so focused on trying to find your unique purpose, your unique calling, what God's will is for your life, that you try to make it and create it yourself. This never happens. It's not possible for you to do that. Look at all the people in Scripture. Look at Esther. Esther did nothing to manufacture it. She's just living in the palace. Mordecai makes a decision that creates this opportunity for Esther to step into this unique calling that God has for her with courage, and she steps into it. It's made known to her. She's not trying to work after this. She's hesitant, in fact. You look at Moses. God makes known his purpose to him. Abraham. God makes known his purpose to him. David, God makes known his purpose to him. Jesus, with all the disciples, he goes up to them when they're just working and fishing, and he says, you need to follow me. That's your purpose. Paul, on the road to Damascus, Jesus comes and finds him and gives him his purpose. You see, your purpose is not manufactured. You can't do that. It is realized in Christ. It is made known to you. It's so important to hold on to that and to remember that because sometimes our search for purpose can speak louder than God himself. And Zephaniah tells us that God will quiet us with his love. God speaks in, in the quietness. And we just rest in the reality of who he is. You see, there is two things that I want you to walk away with tonight. And the first one is this. And we said this last week, but we need to say it again. If you're struggling with understanding what God's unique purpose is in your life, that part that you are to play in the life of his kingdom and in the city, your answer is to just pursue Christ. It's just to live for Christ. That's our calling. That's our purpose. You see, Jesus' purpose was to give his life so that we might find our purpose in him. Jesus wasn't sitting there thinking, if I perish, I, no, he's, I'm going to perish. I will perish. I will give my life as a ransom for you, as, as a substitute that your sins might be forgiven, that you might be reconciled with the God that loves you, and you might find your purpose in me. So if you're struggling with that, like, I don't, I don't really know yet, Carter, what my unique purpose and calling is. Pursue Jesus. And listen, when you pursue Jesus... He will, every single time, make known to you the unique purpose and calling that he has for you in this season. And it may change in different seasons, but he will make it known to you. And then like Esther, our response is to trust and obey. It's to recognize that when God makes known to us our purpose, our response is because we've surrendered our heart to him, because we've been pursuing Christ, 
We say, Jesus, you can have all of me. My personality, my passions, my thoughts. I will trust and obey and step into it. And listen, some of you here may have some exciting and dramatic things that God is calling you into that, are, that cause fear in you. Praise God, that's something to celebrate. But many of us here, God's calling and his purpose for you may be regarded by other people as simple, maybe even boring or generic, but it's not. It's not. And my prayer is that all of us tonight, we would walk away, whether we are lawyers or you're a doctor or you're a bartender or you're a barista or you're an accountant or you're a student or you're a mother or you're a father or you're unemployed, that you would leave tonight knowing God didn't make a mistake with me. He's working in and through me. I may struggle with understanding exactly what God wants me to do right now, but I know my calling is to pursue Christ. It's to run after him, to give and surrender my heart to him, and he will be faithful to make known to me the places that I need to trust and obey. And here's what I want you to leave with. Every single one of us is called to one thing, and it's to bring Jesus into every place in our life. That is our ultimate purpose. That is what God regards as Netflix documentary worthy. That is what God regards as the best. You want to know what it means to hit the bullseye? Bring Jesus into your relationships, into your work, into every opportunity. Bring his nature and his character and his name. That is beautiful and that is hitting the bullseye. So I want you to recite with me this incredible prayer by St. Francis of Assisi. Will you read it aloud with me and then we'll, I'll pray together afterwards. Read this with me. Lord, make known, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. Let's pray.